We're so thankful that each and every individual that's here today has been able to come and that you're here, that you've made the choices and the decisions and the purposeful pursuits this morning to assemble on this Lord's Day. We're so honored and so thankful that God has allowed us this opportunity, and yea, that the fruition of it has come. What better way could there possibly be to start a week than on its first day in the morning thereof to assemble and to gather with a desire to worship in truth and in spirit, John 4, verse 24, and to do so in all ways that would be pleasing and acceptable unto Him. As you might have given some appreciation to the title of the lesson that's now on the wall to my left, a title that really is part two of a two-part series, one that you and I began last Lord's Day morning. Perhaps these opening comments on this introductory slide will bring to our recollection that which we considered then. We looked last Lord's Day morning at that set of verses in Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. And we highlighted that set of circumstances touching how to deal with trespasses, those being originating from the actions of a brother. What if a fellow Christian, someone who is my brother or sister in Christ, trespasses against me? You and I learned last Lord's Day morning that Jesus gave us a set of procedures that we might follow. It started with going to Him alone. If that was not to be worked out that way, then take a witness or two. If again He would not hear thee, then bring it before the church, Jesus said. And finally, if again that approach was unsuccessful, finally, let him be as a heathen and a publican the final matter of disfellowship. That issue and trespass, though, was all predicated, wasn't it, on that opening consideration, if a brother trespass against thee. You and I might realize, though, that there are many situations in the world in which someone who is not my brother in Christ, someone who is not a fellow Christian may trespass against me. What is to be done in that case? You recognize that it seems bringing such a matter as that before the church would have little opportunity of success for that individual is no member of the church, does not recognize or respect the authority inherent in the church. You certainly, along with me, must look at different passages to gain some appreciation of what to do in a circumstance like this one. So today, Handling Trespasses Part 2 what do you and I do based on the Word of God in a circumstance like this one? Why don't we begin that set of considerations by prompting the oftenness or at least the frequency with which something like this might occur. I've entitled this slide merely that of behaviors. Interesting, isn't it, that you and I know so very well by the character of God's holy and inspired Word that these comments immediately follow. The world in which you and I live is described in the Bible itself as that which is evil. In Galatians chapter 1, verse number 4, speaking about Christ, the consideration, the character that touches that, you've been delivered from this present evil world. Later on, we appreciate in 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 4, the nature of the one who is the directing leader of this Satan is the God of this world. There are so many that choose to follow Him. There are so many who have given their lives in open compliance and pursued the very one who has no love for them. The devil doesn't love you. He doesn't love me. He wants to destroy you and me. He wants nothing more than to sever our relationship with God. In light of those things, you and I know so well 
then the world is not going to have a favorable disposition toward Christianity and toward Christians in particular. Marvel not if the world hate you. John's famous refrain of 1 John 3 verse 13. Along with that, I would ask you to notice so well the consideration touching the attribute of persecution. Paul himself, one who so often could comment and remark about his own experiences... It was he who told Timothy these words, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. A direct and powerful and in fact a guaranteed statement. You'll notice the next development then leads us to note the wide distinction that separates those who are of God and those who are not. Maybe John again summarized it so very succinctly in verse 19 of 1 John 5. Christians, are, of course, are of God, and they are the ones who follow the light. The world, he says, lieth in darkness. It is amazing, isn't it, that wide distinction. Those who follow the light which God has to offer, those who have given their lives in faithful and open obedience to it, and then there are those who choose to walk in the dark. Because the devil is of the dark. He likes the darkness. By that, of course, we mean spiritual darkness. There's no truth in him. Surely all those ideas bring us to note this statement. If it is the case, then, that the world pursues that which is dark and follows that which is of the devil, it is not a strange or uncommon thing that those people who follow him, that namely the devil, will behave toward Christians the same way that he would himself. Notice these verses. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus perhaps stated it as clearly and as definitively as possible. He very clearly on that occasion said, Ye are of your father the devil. Here was the Lord speaking to some individuals in the first century and He directly face to face told them, Your daddy is the devil. What did the Lord mean by that? Now physically, of course, He wasn't meaning their literal physical father, but by their behavior, by their conduct, by their choice to rebel against God, by the various and sundry descriptions of their life, they allied themselves with the devil and not with the Lord. You are of your father the devil. And he went on to describe some of the features and attributes. Namely, the devil is a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't love life. He doesn't appreciate that which is genuine and true life. Not only that, he's a liar and has been from the very dawn of time. Finally, he says, there is no truth in him. The devil's going to lie and deceive. He's going to mislead and misdirect. Sometimes people of the world who choose to follow Him will, of course, do the same. And they're going to lie to you and me. And they're going to deceive you and me. And they're going to try to mislead you and me. They're going to behave toward us in the way that not only do we not prefer, but it might bring damage and harm. It might hurt feelings. It might even be actual physical trespasses. They might steal from you or me. They might behave in some, such a way to bring harm to you or me or those we love. You see, we live in this world that so often chooses to follow the devil and not, of course, to follow the God that loves it. Finally, I would ask you to notice then at the bottom of this slide, when you and I are called upon to face circumstances like this 
and these trespasses are due to one who is not a brother in Christ, what do we do? How do we handle it? What approach do we take? This set of verses that was read in our hearing a moment ago by Brother Allen sets before us some remarkable considerations. I would ask that we revisit that and walk our way through it somewhat slowly, but nonetheless striving to attain the appreciations and the highlighted conclusions from it. Again, it's Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 38. Let me ask you to notice the way in which this very description begins, and you've noticed that I'm going to entitle the latter sections of the lesson today, Christ's Law. And one by one, we will consider several points based on this text before us. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The first comment in this paragraph that Jesus brings before them is, you've heard this. This is probably the prototypical response that many would highlight. They've done it to you, you do it to them. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This individual who has acted with such unkindness towards you, this individual who has behaved in such a hurtful way, well, you feel free to do it to them and do it one better if you can. Notice Jesus said, you've heard this. He didn't say, I'm telling you this. You and I might pause for a moment and notice. Now, there is a section of that that really is a direct quotation out of the Old Testament. As you and I reflect upon this fifth chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, you notice several times in the chapter Jesus begins a certain description or discussion with the words, you have heard that it hath been said. For instance, you might notice verse number 27, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. Verse number 33, you have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. And then verse 38, Verse number 43 will be yet another occurrence. Jesus is using their familiarity with and their knowledge of the Old Testament in terms of not only highlighting that which was a truth in some way at one point, but extending it and beautifully highlighting its grand application. You've heard that it hath been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I would ask that you think with me about some of these passages from which that is quoted in the Old Testament. That is basically found three times. The first in Exodus chapter 21. The scene was this. Suppose that there was a woman who was pregnant and there were two men that got into a fight. As a result of that fight, they in some way bring some means of damage or harm to the woman and maybe even to the child she's carrying. What was to be done in such a case as that? Well, the Word of God makes a strong distinction. Supposing they're fighting, they really don't bring any serious injury. She's fine, the baby's fine, maybe she's just been knocked down or something. The Old Testament describes that in one consideration, but then it raises the bar and says, suppose damage occurred to the baby. Suppose she loses the baby as a result of the foolishness of these men. You'll notice that these statements follow. If there's no damage brought, you can appreciate that ultimately there was to be a penalty laid on the fighting men that was to be decreed by the virtue of her husband. They had to pay a certain amount of money, for example. Again, if no mischief followed, that was the extent of the penalty. 
However, you may well notice the following. If there was injury to that woman or to the baby, extending even to the point of life, that's when God said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. The God of heaven thus elevated the consideration on that occasion. You could extend yourself so far as to exact a measure of vengeance if the baby or again the woman lost their life or was seriously injured in some way. I would ask you to notice the name that is sometimes to this day given in courts of law relative to that subject. It's at the top of that slide, Lex Talionis, a Latin phrase that means the law of retaliation. Here was an Old Testament scene when God identified this Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Notice the second occurrence of this in Leviticus 24, verses 19 and following. You'll notice the highlighted consideration. If there was an individual who caused a blemish in another, and that blemish literally means a defect, some genuine absolute injury in some form, then you'll notice that's when God made this statement, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In that instance, you'll notice again in those days of the Old Testament, God then did allow if someone rendered a consideration of hurtfulness and defect to you, you could pursue the same of them. One final occurrence in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 19 verse 21, near the bottom of that same slide, you'll appreciate there it was highlighted to a consideration of judgment. And there it was extended in language like this, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, even highlighted a foot for a foot. You and I, as we've discussed that some in our Sunday morning Bible classes, we found a powerful deterrent, you would think, to foolish behavior that that would be. If you act in such a way to cause that loss at another, they could pursue the same of you. But as you and I close that slide, we quickly comment as following. That even extended to life itself. If you with premeditation took the life of another, then you notice in that Old Testament era, of course, you were to be rendered guilty and your life was taken. But what if you took someone else's life accidentally? God's law also made provision for that. If you took someone's life accidentally, then the eye for eye and tooth for tooth could mean that that person's family might come and seek you out and take your life too. God made provision for the cities of refuge. An individual who accidentally took the life of another could proceed at once to the cities of refuge and there be granted safety. That degree of safety, of course, reminds us this eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a part of this Old Testament law to be used in proper course and to be used in reasonable fashion. But you'll notice Jesus began this discussion in Matthew 5 by saying, You have heard that this has been said. What did the Lord then say in the next verse? Did He echo the sentiment of this lex talionis or did He say something different? Verse number 39, But I say unto you, whereas they had heard this other proclamation, this statement from the law of Moses, Jesus now says, But I'm telling you this. This is now what will be the law in the kingdom. This will be the law that is the law of Christ. What is this law that is the law of Christ? On this next slide, you begin to appreciate with me, it's point number two. 
the very wording that the Lord uses is this one. But I say unto you, verse number 39, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Let's develop some of the features, if we might, based on a verse like that one, and let's develop it like this. One of the first things I would ask you to notice is, is the tense of the verb that the Lord used in reference to that opening part of that verse. That ye resist not evil. You might appreciate with me that that particular word is in the active voice in the Greek text. And that seems to highlight a degree of aggressiveness. In other words, if someone has behaved toward you and me in such a fashion that, again, is not only unfavorable, but really is on the verdict of a consideration like these, resist not evil. Don't take active retaliation to the man. To retaliate, you see, would put us in light of eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The first thing the Lord commented, resist not him. The him referring to the one who's wronged you. The one who has behaved in such a way that's impacted a tooth or at least impacted some degree of life. Resist not evil. As you think about not resisting him, this one who has acted in that evil way, you and I then should appreciate that what Jesus seemingly emphasizes is this consideration of retaliating, behaving toward them in the same way they've behaved toward us. We know so well the ethic that Jesus described in the New Testament is far greater, far higher than that. Here He says, Resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Surely, in light of all those things, notice the language. The literal way in which that seems to be written is it employs the word slap. If he slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Now, does that mean that no matter what the man does to me, I am to sit passively by and let him do whatever it is is his pleasure? Am I to allow myself to be a glutton for any and all punishments, physical or otherwise, that he might choose to bring? Absolutely not. That is not what the Lord said. You and I have every right to protect our physical person. What he meant in this was, don't you seek to retaliate against him. When he said to turn the other cheek, it might well be he slaps the other cheek, but the idea first in mind is, as you turn the cheek, you seek to de-escalate the situation. You seek to bring an element of calm and peacefulness. Now, like we say, when you turn the cheek and he slaps the other one, well, so be it if he does that. But at least we've made an effort and an attempt to bring a sense of acting far greater than the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. As you and I develop that even more thoroughly, wasn't it prophesied even of Jesus that something like that would happen? They slapped his face and Micah 5 verse 1 prophesied it. Do you remember when they smote Jesus on the face and said, Prophesy, which one of us hit you? Wasn't that an indignity? Wasn't that a sense, of course, of great physical insult, blasphemy, and harm? And yet, of course, the Lord acted with such calmness. As you and I think about the circumstances that we face, think again about de-escalating or attempting to quell the circumstance. As you and I go even further, notice Jesus gives a second example. Verse number 40, 
And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Here's an individual with such a sense of advantage of themselves, such a disconcern and discompassion for others. They go to a court of law and their sole matter is to try and sue you for your coat. Now, isn't it true? Most courts of law involve a lot more than that. They sue for a lot of money. They sue for your house, your car, something very expensive. But they don't go to a court of law just to get the coat you're wearing. At least that's not very common. Jesus chose these examples, it would seem, very carefully. Probably you and I would consider suing for your coat a very minor thing. In fact, many of us before whom I stand today likely would be willing to give them the coat. They wouldn't have to go to the court of law to get it. But what if someone who was so mischievous and who was so in, into getting what you, the coat you have that they are willing to go to a court of law and pay the lawyers just to get your coat? Jesus said the following, Let him have thy cloak also. In other words, rather than being disadvantaged, it would in fact be far better to be minimally inconvenienced and take care of circumstances like this one rather than retaliating and going to a court of law and trying to get even with him. It wouldn't be worth it. You'd be better off to give him the cloak and the coat too. Do you see the point? You and I probably would consider these rather minor considerations. We'll have some additional comments in a moment, but look at the next one. He also says in verse number 41, Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. I would ask you to note the verb the Lord used. He said compel. He didn't say invite. Probably if someone invited you or me or at least requested us to walk with them, to help them, to assist them in some way, we'd be happy to do it. What if they, by virtue of some element in law or otherwise, force you to walk with them a mile? After all, there were cases in the Roman Empire when things like that could be done. You and I today have a modern mail service. The mailman comes faithfully every day except Sunday. He delivers in such a faithful character. How did they get news spread? There were posts, and the Roman government had the opportunity. In fact, by law, they could require you. If a particular Roman official could require you to accompany them. Well, Jesus says, suppose you are forced to accompany someone for a mile. Rather than to retaliate, or rather than to act in such an unfavorable, unkind way, walk the second mile with them. That's the Christian attitude, isn't it? You'll appreciate as we transition to the next slide that some of those things can be summarized or at least stated in ways like this. You'll notice that these have highlighted quite frankly and at the most basic level the consideration of getting even, retaliation. And the Lord has said that is not the Christian way. If someone who's not a brother wrongs me, I don't try to get even. I don't try to retaliate. Now, be quick to notice what the Lord did not say in all these verses. If His highlight, if His thrust, if His objective has been to address the matter of retaliation, what if someone comes and actually threatens one of your children? 
Are you to stand by and do nothing? All the while, they perhaps inflict pain on the other child too. Some might so say that that's what this verse teaches. Someone comes and holds a gun to the head of one of your children. You have an opportunity to end that situation, but Jesus said, I'm to turn the other cheek. There's nothing I can do, even in a passive way. That's not what the Lord taught. You and I have every right to honorably seek to quell a situation. And if this person is bringing harm to you or me or another that we love, we have every right to reasonably seek to employ the matters to defend ourselves. In fact, you may notice, look at some of the ways other verses help us understand that that's what the Lord intended. We mustn't take those other things out of the context in which we find this one. I would ask you to note the following. Jesus mentioned these minor cases, it seems, especially for that reason. In fact, look at the very last one, verse 42. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. So if someone comes and says, give me your house, give me your car, give me everything you own, am I supposed to do it based on that verse and ask no questions? Of course not. We understand so well that you and I must not be enablers of other people's foolishness. Sometimes a lazy person, a slothful person will come and ask of something when you and I know well in the attribute of love, the best thing we could do for that person is to say no and assist them to find a job, to encourage them to work, to encourage them to employ their skills in such a way to better themselves and those they love. You and I know well that if you just give a child everything they ask, they'll be a spoiled brat and they will not be an honorable citizen. You and I can't encourage or enable other people's foolish choices. You can't just give them everything they ask for. The book of Proverbs had told any parent, there are going to be times that you're supposed to discipline those children. You do not spare the rod. For if you do, you spoil the child. Proverbs 13, 24. You and I know well then that as we consider... No matter what someone asks, you and I realize we are told to provide for our own. 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, If any man will provide not for his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And we're told in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, that if a man won't work, then he ought not eat. Now those verses can't be taken to contradict, the, to, to contradict these, can they? We know the Lord here was asserting a matter of highlighting first no retaliation. And then in that latter consideration we notice as you and I seek not to enable those choices that others may make, give to him that asketh thee. We are to have a heart of compassion. If someone is in need, if someone is genuinely in a position of needfulness, of course as Christians we would have a heart desiring to share with them that which we have. It is to be noted finally that verse number 43 brings us to another statement that our Savior made. Verse number 43 says, Ye have heard that it hath been said. One more time, Jesus then comments, You've heard this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor 
and hate thine enemy. I suppose that has been a tendency for the entirety of human history, isn't it? Namely, that you do good and love them that do good to you, but to those that don't do so good to you, you hate them. Or at least you don't have any nice considerations of them. At this point, we might at least consider briefly, there is a part of that verse that is a quotation from the Old Testament. The first part of it was, Jesus did quote from Leviticus 19, Love your neighbor. But the second part of that verse is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. Hate your enemy. Now, what did the Lord then mean? Notice He says, You've heard that it hath been said, the Jewish rabbis taught that. The Jewish rabbis taught that you love those that are your neighbor, but you hate those that are your enemy. But that was nowhere in the Old Testament. Well, it was time for the Lord to clarify some things and set some things in order. Isn't it interesting that He says, although that's what you've heard. Verse number 43 says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, verse 44, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And so these comments at the bottom. It is a strong human tendency, isn't it? To a strong dislike for those that don't act very well to us. As long as someone's kind and good to me, it's easy to at least return that in, in, in some version. But what about those who genuinely are enemies to me? And those that are genuine enemies to you and those who have a disdain and a dislike for and even those who have at some point in the past willfully and with premeditation have harmed in some way you, your career, your family or otherwise. The Lord forevermore said, even to those people, you love them. You love them. Now, that's not easy. But might we at least make this consideration? There are several different Greek words that meant love. There is a kind of love that has strong affection in it, like a husband with his wife. The word used here is not that one. This is agape. It is a willful choice to act toward another in the way that is for their benefit. At the present time, they may not think that. They may think, why are you doing this to me? But in the long run, you know it's for their benefit. With regard to your enemy, it is certainly possible then to behave toward that person in a way that is far from retaliation. You even pray for them, hoping that they will come to realize the actions that they've done, the way in which it violates teachings of the Scriptures, and that they will make choices that will soon be far different and better. That you and I can do as Christians. And that greatly helps in situations, doesn't it? When someone who's been so mean and yet you and I can earnestly and honestly pray to God for them and on their behalf, it certainly helps our attitude to be so much better, doesn't it? And in time, by the very providence and working of God, maybe that influence can be a good thing for them. The Lord went on to say this. In verse number 44, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Even those that persecute you. Bless them. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? How many times have you and I recollected 
either directly or otherwise, that that has made such an incredible difference on what other people appreciate. For that's all they typically see in the world is one person doing to another exactly what the first one did to the second. But when they see the Christian spirit in which we, you and I not only do not retaliate, but we earnestly want what's best for them because we want them to be saved eventually. We want them to come to know the Lord. So at the top of this slide, how did the Lord act toward those that nailed nails in Him? He prayed that they'd be forgiven. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They were acting in ignorance. Many of them didn't know He was the Son of God. But that didn't change the fact that the Lord did not say, Give them what they justly deserve. He prayed to His heavenly Father, Forgive them. On the day of Pentecost, the 3,000 of them or so, they were forgiven. They did submit to the terms of forgiveness. The final statement on that one, many other examples you and I can readily remember. Saul, Stephen, maybe in quickness. Let's close our lesson this morning. Peter has much to say about this same subject in 1 Peter chapter 2. In verses 19, on to the end of that chapter, Peter comments about the nature of what you and I are to do when an individual wrongs us. I would ask that you read or listen as I read that before us. The words are so powerful. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully... For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Peter said, it's no great thing if you suffer when you've done what's wrong. But he said, when you do what's right and you suffer at the hands of others, how do we handle it? He said, you take it patiently. That sounds a lot like the Lord's description of turning the other cheek. Don't try to retaliate. Surely, in light of all those things, you'll notice the example of the Master and permitting us to close our lesson with what's at the bottom of that slide. How do we handle this? When someone trespasses or wrongs us in this way, First thing would seem to be comparable to what we've seen before. Nowhere in this text do we find the needfulness of gossiping about it. That won't help solve it. When this person has wronged us, we first of all, of course, try to appreciate with patience. That's what Peter said, take it patiently. Sometimes, again, that's a challenge. But that patience is what you and I have seen embodied. The first thing that you and I could do is realize maybe the person did not act with deliberation. Approach them in private. Bring to their attention what they did and how it affected you. If they didn't understand what they did, that may settle it. They may apologize and ask for forgiveness, and that's the end of it. If, however, they continue to think that what they've done is okay, if they continue to uphold the error that they've done, at that point, you and I realize perhaps the following statement. Confide in a witness and allow this individual to help settle this dispute. If the person will hear it, you've settled the matter. If they won't, 
if it's a serious enough matter, then you would have opportunity to perhaps pursue a court of law or otherwise. But never ever must we violate the teaching of 1 Corinthians 6. Over these minor infractions, don't take a brother to law. We're talking today about one who's not a brother. I hope as we've discussed these issues today of understanding what to do if it's not a brother. Handling the trespass is always going to be a challenge. Let's close the lesson with these. Christ's law has brought these ideas before us. No retaliation. Don't try to get even. But rather, we appreciate so easily that Jesus set before us to love them, to act in their best interest. That may not be give them what they want. It may be to stand for the wrong that they've done, but to try and help them appreciate it. And finally, as you and I seek to take it patiently, we then approach with, wise, with wisdom and with earnesty. Today, as we close this lesson, it may be that you and I can appreciate what a sublime example Jesus is, how often He was wronged. I hope as we use these principles in helpfulness for us, we can be better equipped and able to allow the Word of God to show forth in our lives. It might be that there's someone in the audience today that's not a faithful member of the body of Christ. Jesus calls us to peace with Him. He wants us to be favorable children of His. If you're not today, don't remain in that condition, but why not at once come? We've chosen a song of encouragement. We're going to stand in a moment and sing it, and if we could be of help to you even now, we would love to do it. Why not come while together we stand and sing?